I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Melissa Parrish. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Natalie Chabelle to discuss the major shifts underway in healthcare and what the future could hold. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Natalie, let's just start with the level set. Where are we now I hate sort of bringing up the pandemic. I feel like I do this in every episode, but it has an obvious and enormous impact on healthcare. So let's talk about what are some of the shifts that stand out to you? What have you been following most closely? And then we can kind of go from there. Sure. I think the biggest uh, thing that we're seeing now is this tremendous rising consumerism. So yes, the pandemic had a tremendous impact on the healthcare industry. And throughout it all, people became more accountable for their health. Uh, They're more interested in the different options of care that were available to them. There was this explosive rise in telehealth. And, you know, people are taking um, a, a, a better approach to uh, getting the health care that they need. And so they really wanted what they were getting out of retail experiences. Uh, so so the, the pandemic really accelerated uh, the healthcare industry by a decade. And they, they had to, they had no other choice. And, and we saw that with the, the rapid adoption of telehealth, basically overnight, where we had 80% um, uh, use of telehealth across providers. And so th- those were the biggest changes that we saw. So let me jump in there on one of these technology changes that, um, that I have experienced. And I think many other people with, without any major um, health concerns have experienced. Uh, and it's really good, but it leaves us with a question. Here's the thing. This amazing system that most just regular doctor's offices have and a lot of hospitals that do um, just normal appointments where you get there, you text to say that you're, you've arrived, but you stay in your car. And when your room is ready, uh, when the examining room is ready, they text you and then you just go in. That's cool. But what's really cool is that you never wait more than like five minutes. How is that possible? What has facilitated not having to wait an hour and a half for the doctor um, the way it seemed to always be? Um, And I ask that because another trend that I know we want to talk about is is the incredible and devastating shortages in healthcare professionals. So it seems very strange that we have this increase in technology that's allowing for a much better customer experience while provider numbers are decreasing. What do you think is up with that? Sure. So you mentioned a a very interesting uh, new technological advancement during the pandemic. So, um, you know, we wanted to really reduce the the time that people were in physical spaces. And in order to do that, you had to eliminate uh, what causes most of the the holdups in the waiting rooms, and that's the the onboarding. So when someone comes into the waiting room, especially if they're a new patient, they have to fill out lots of paperwork. So now what what doctor's offices have been doing is that they've been front-loading that process, having the patient fill out that paperwork in advance and keeping them outside of of the waiting room as much as possible and um, pulling up their information prior to them coming into the office. So that I thought was uh, a, a very good advancement uh, that was caused by the pandemic that is, is going to continue. Yeah, that's smart. I wonder why they didn't do it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> so we just talked about the stellar experiences we're having 
now and the technology that's helping to facilitate that. But let's talk about the part of the question we did not get to um, that Melissa sort of teed up. And, and that is, you know, healthcare staffing shortages, how severe are those shortages today? And, um, and then maybe this assumed tension, I guess, of we're actually having good to better experiences now, even though there are staff shortages. Sure. So that's uh, we're in a, a talent acquisition crisis uh, when it comes to healthcare right now, and we already had a, a shortage of clinicians, which was was growing, and the pandemic has only exacerbated that. And now we're seeing uh, an unfortunate shortage of nurses as well. So about one in five have left the healthcare workforce. Uh, they're retiring earlier. They're suffering from post-traumatic stress, burnout. Uh, there's also a shortage of faculty in nursing schools. So there's only a certain amount of students that they can take in. Uh, so we're now having to um, source candidates from overseas. And we're having a very high turnover rate. And the nurses that are still in, they're being poached by traveling nurse companies, uh, tantalized with, with bonuses up to $25,000. Some nurses are leaving and taking those opportunities and then coming back and, and getting paid higher salaries. So it's an interesting uh, talent acquisition market, super competitive. And as we know, whenever we have lots of turnover in an environment, it, it really uh, results in some inefficiencies. Um, it, it also makes it harder for the individuals who are still on board to, to get their work done. They're taking on more roles. They're getting more burnt out. And it's very disruptive. And in medical, in the medical industry, when things are disruptive, where there's more disruption than normal, mistakes happen, right? And in our uh, 2022 predictions report, uh, we predicted that the medication errors would actually double. Um, so, you know, we're, we're seeing some consequences of, of staffing shortages today. And it's um, something that we need to continue to focus on. We need to, to pay special attention and, and keep a pulse on our healthcare workforce and how they're doing. And there's some certain ways that um, healthcare organizations are doing that. And I don't want to have a spoiler alert for our future research, but we're looking into that right now. Bringing together two things that, that we've just been talking about, I wonder if the sudden advancements in healthcare technology that many of the doctors and nurses have to do, um, technology in hospitals, technology for doctors and their staffs, is that exacerbating the problem of burnout? Is that causing stress among some of our practitioners or is that actually helping? It, it depends. Um, you know, digital transformation takes a while. And I think a lot of the providers and, and what they're voicing to us, they're struggling with the electronic health record. So the average clinician spends around six hours of their time with the electronic health record. And some other time, of course, face-to-face -face time with patients, answering emails. And so there's a tremendous administrative burden and another part of that piece is the stress on the primary care physician. So your internists, your family medicine doctors, your, your, your pediatricians, uh, they're struggling the most. We're about 30% primary care physicians here in the U.S. and 70% specialists. In Europe, it's actually flipped. And, and you might say, well, how is that possible? Well, we have a, a different payer system. But they're, they're feeling the stress the most right now. And you know, primary care is the, are the eyes and ears of medicine. That's the doorway. They're the ones who are recognizing that uh, a patient has a um, has an issue, the first person to diagnose. And so when there's a gap there, when there's all this struggle there, it's a domino effect, right? There's more hospital admissions um, and more readmissions. 
and, and you see this trickle down effect of um, the issue of not enough primary care physicians. And that could be a whole nother podcast of, of why exactly that is. But uh, again, it's the administrative burden. It's not the sexiest job for uh, for a, a medical school student. Um, they get a lot more money uh, if they pursue a specialty. And it, what's more attractive to to a student when they graduate? They don't want to be. Uh, they don't want to have loans forever. And so um, that's that's those are some of the main um, barriers to more individuals going into primary care. Thinking about the shortages and those stressors that you've described, I mean, what is being put in place to help resolve some of these issues? Do you see this trend continuing for the foreseeable future? What is the trajectory of the situation? I absolutely do see it continuing in the future. Uh, Right now, there's a pandemic. The pandemic is continuing. And when this pandemic is over, you know, I'm, I'm in public health. You know, we, we predicted something like this would happen for quite some time. We just didn't know how severe the impact would be. We also know that there will be another pandemic. It's just inevitable. Um, we also have the, uh, the silver tsunami. We have this growing elderly population. We also have a very high prevalence of chronic disease. Six in 10 adults have a chronic disease. Four in 10 have two or more chronic diseases. They're responsible for the vast majority of our annual $3.8 trillion uh, healthcare spend. And this is a major problem. Uh, $1.2 trillion is dedicated towards uh, hospital spend. And, you know, we're, this is going to continue. Um, the, the stress, the burnout is going to continue. I hate to be a, a, a downer in all this. And you've asked a wonderful question, what are healthcare organizations doing? And that's precisely what myself and uh, Jonathan Roberts, uh, another analyst, here at Forrester, we're exactly wondering. And so we are going to write a report specifically on that, uh, interviewing clinicians, some nurses and doctors, um, th- trying to identify some of the exact causes of their stressors and what uh, resources are available to them that, that the healthcare organizations are providing. How do they keep a pulse? What types of mitigative factors do they have to, to keep people from leaving, to recognize that they're struggling before it's too late? So I think we've talked about a lot of things that are very important for everybody to recognize, as scary as they may be. Um, I would like to take a little bit of a pivot and talk about the innovations that um, that that touch the patient that have been um, unexpected and nice for a lot of people, like telehealth, which you've mentioned. Um, There's the hospital at home care that that people are experiencing for the first time. Tell us a little bit about some of those innovations, how far they've come and where you expect them to go. Um, And maybe if you don't mind, uh, if you could define hospital at home in case there are some uh, folks listening who aren't familiar with that. Sure. So hospital at home, uh, to keep the definition very simple, is the, the care of an individual with an acute condition in actually their home environment. So it's away from the brick and mortar. Uh, they have access to uh, a multitude of technologies, the biggest one being telehealth. As you know, telehealth has been revolutionary for the healthcare industry. In addition to that, they have remote patient monitoring de- devices. These are FDA approved medical devices to keep a pulse on their, their biometrics. Um, there's also uh, different workforce management um, technologies that are used to keep track of the different providers coming in and out of the houses. Uh, the, there's propri- proprietary electronic health record systems. Um, so it really encompasses a, a whole host of technologies, um, and it makes it possible to deliver uh, you know, acute care to individuals who are sick, 
recovering from a hospital surgery um, or individuals with chronic disease. Um, so that's essentially what, what hospital at home care is. There isn't a standardized model. And I was just talking to uh, Dr. Levine of Brigham and Women's um, Hospital yesterday, and I asked him, do you think, doctor, that they are going to come up with a, a standardized model? And he said, no. Um, basically, it's whatever works for that healthcare organization um, is, and whatever is effective to treat their patients is, is what they're going to do. Um, each healthcare organization is set up differently. Each model is different. And right now, the, the volumes, the patient volumes are very low compared to, say, the, um, the actual hospital. So as, as this program continues to, to ramp up, we're going to see um, more occupancy, um, you know, with this type of, of delivery model of care. So what do you think is going to happen in terms of how popular this kind of mode of care is going to be in, in 2022 and perhaps beyond? I mean, you said, obviously, you know, the percentage of, of patients using or in this model is is less or significantly less than people in the brick and mortar. But do you see this becoming more popular? And what other, you know, benefits um, would we see kind of moving to this model or more patients moving to this model? Hands down, it's absolutely going to accelerate. The, the patient volumes are low, but that's because it's still in its infancy stage. However, it's, it's rapidly accelerating throughout America. Right now, there are about um, uh, 90 hospital systems, 200 hospitals across 34 states that have some type of hospital at home program in place. And that program has to meet stringent CMS criteria. And it's typically piloted out for a few months. And, you know, so the hospital determines their protocols and procedures. They train their staff and they determine their thresholds of what patients that they're, they have the capabilities and the resources to safely manage their care at home. So I know from the research you mentioned um, that uh, hospital at home and Medicare have have worked some things out, which is which is great, um, especially as we look at the silver tsunami. Um, I'm wondering about the impact of this innovation, this trend on hospitals and insurers. I mean, obviously, anything related to healthcare has some downstream impacts, but those are the two that we don't often talk about because we always talk about the patient. So. Um, and we should, uh, but just for the sake of conversation, what is uh, what are the impacts on the, the hospitals and the insurers? Sure, it's having a tremendous uh, impact. Uh, it's it's been very well researched uh, that hospital at home programs improve the uh, the triple aim. It's not quite enough research for the quadruple aim that provider experience yet, but the different providers that we had the opportunity of interviewing have stated that having a hospital home program, in addition to different home-based programs where patients are, are monitored remotely via remote patient monitoring devices, has definitely improved the, the quality of life of, of the physician. Um, we even now have virtual ICUs, and that's for a whole other conversation. But when you talk about improving the, the quadruple aim, the provider experience, the patient experience, improving uh, patient outcomes, and of course, reducing costs, there's been lots of research that's been conducted and as we continue to see these, these models evolve, we'll get more data. And the more and more data that we get, the more comfortable CMS will be and insurers will be uh, in, in making this something that's long-term. Right now, there's a waiver um, that CMS has that's allowing the, the, the care, uh, the acute care of individuals in the home environment to continue uh, based on the pandemic and the medical surge capacities of hospitals. Um, so, and, and I asked Dr. Levine this yesterday in our interview, if he foresees this becoming a permanent thing, and he, he absolutely agreed. Uh, so, you know, we're going to see um, 
in more more insurance coverage because you know for obvious reasons people heal better in the home. There's reduced uh, hospital associated infections, of course, which is a, a major uh, epidemic here in the United States. There's less physical injuries, uh, slips and falls. Um, and, you know, of course, people have that, there's that whole psychological piece of it. They've got their loved ones at home, their pets, their, all their comforts of, at home. And, you know, when you take the, you know, the piece of, of having to transport individuals back and forth to the hospital, it, you know, it's also safer in that regard as well. And so I think that this is just the beginning. Uh, there'll be an increased technology and we'll have, of course, algorithms that, that are starting to be developed that determine criteria uh, if someone is eligible. Right now, it's, it's being manually done within the hospital um, because that's a requirement for reimbursement. Eventually, we're going to get to the point where, where uh, individuals are, um, are already identified through technology and, and the algorithms will run. You'll always have a provider that will confirm uh, that the selection is good, but it'll reduce some of that administrative burden as the volume of patients that are, be cared, that are cared for in this way are increasing. I mean, what you're talking about, I always sort of, maybe this is not a good place where my mind goes, but I'm like, oh, data is being created over here. There's data over here. There's things happening at pharmacies and there's patient, you know, data here. How How is the industry as a whole sort of recognizing that potential issue of pockets of patient data, who owns that data, and how do we bring that the, that data together so it's understandable for the clinician, for the patient? Uh, that just, it strikes me as sort of these, um, you know, modes of care evolve and change that that could become a real issue if it's not already. Jen, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or billion dollar, I, I should say. So so there was something that uh, was enforced this past July, this past summer. It's called the Cures Act Final Rule. Um, and that requires all healthcare organizations to have the application programming interfaces that allows patients to have access to their medical information. And easier said than done, it's the healthcare system, the biggest problem, at least the way I see it, is that it's so fragmented, right? You have so much data in, in all these disparate places, and it's in a myriad of formats. It's in a different language. And so we, we now have something called the FHIR standard. It's the latest standard, and it puts it in, in the same language so that one provider can communicate with, with another. If you think of um, all the, the taxonomies as this, this, this transatlantic cable, and you've got Italy on one side, and you've got, you've got Switzerland on the other side, you know, yes, there's information going back and forth, but if it's not in the same language, they're not going to understand one another. And so that's that's the biggest challenge is is to partner with an expert that is uh, understands how to how to take those taxonomies, recognize them. Okay, this is an MRI, this is a, a diagnostic, and let's go ahead and and put it all into that that fire language. Easier said than done, and there's lots of nuances that that go into that. Um, even above my level of knowledge in, in terms of the architecture, but that that is the biggest one of the biggest challenges in healthcare today. And now you have this huge rise in consumerism. You have the ability to go online with some of these direct to consumer companies and get primary care, and all of these different choices, right? And as a public health expert, I, I kind of it's exciting, but I also cringe a little bit too because we want to make sure that this care isn't disruptive, right? If if one provider recommends or, or is prescribing one medication, 
or prescribing one uh, therapy, think of a mental health patient. And then another provider is prescribing something different. Uh, we don't want care that's disruptive and we don't want duplicative care as well. Um, and when I think about the opioid epidemic and the overuse of narcotics here in the United States, you know, I, I, that's my, that's my, my concern. I want to make sure that, that people are getting the care that they need, that, that they're getting greater access, uh, which is happening, um, through some uh, different companies, direct to consumer, where they're actually eliminating the middleman. They're taking the insurer out of it altogether. And because of a lack of a brick of mortar infrastructure, they're able to offer appointments at affordable prices. One company the other day was it was a thirty dollar uh, cash for their appointment. I uh, was uh, a, a vendor that specialized in, in, in women's health, and you know they they had uh, they had asynchronous messaging, so the provider wasn't actually in front of the patient, and so that's why the the uh, the cost can be controlled, and you know the, the the patient would answer questions as they were able to, and the provider would respond, and so um, you know they're getting the care that they needed, their questions answered. Um, so we're going to see more of those those companies, but again, I'm a little concerned. Um, they have zero access to their their uh, primary care providers' records, their hospital records. You know, it would be up to the patient to procure those records and share them with that provider. So that's so that's my greatest concern. So thinking about how we, I mean, we've we've covered so much ground in this conversation, and just bringing it back to what should the health provider do with all of the information you just shared today, Natalie, but these with these shifts and prepare, either prepare for these shifts or, you know, these shifts are already underway and some of them are, how, how are, how should they think about tackling these or maybe just a few sort of three points of like where to start um, when considering these shifts um, are now sort of your reality? Yeah, that, and that's a really good question. And I'm faced with that almost daily. So, you know, we have this this huge rise of consumerism. We have uh, the disruption that pharmacy retail is now is now getting involved in. And we see all the clinics that are now uh, associated with our uh, retail pharmacies. And it's, you know, I have a, a, lots of advice for primary care. And it's really look out, you know, you're going to have to compete uh, with that CVS down the street, you're going to have to provide an impeccable level of customer service. And in order to do that, you're going to have to um, adopt some some new technologies. The, the biggest one uh, being conversational AI. Um, get rid of that fax machine, please. <laughs> um, so many physicians still using fax machines. But, um, you know, have the, the capacity to engage with your patient um, provide them directions, provide them instructions prior to their appointment, uh, forms to fill out uh, to remove some of those barriers uh, to seeing the doctor, um, having a better, not only bedside manner, but website manner. A lot of doctors, they're stressed, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're gold on how many patients that they see in any given day. And, you know, getting that empathy back into treatment is super important right now. And that patient especially now where that patient's more concerned about their health. You know, they want that eye to eye contact and they want to feel heard and, and listened to. And that's something that the, the, something simple that that's something that doesn't even require technology uh, that, that needs to be um, brought back into the practice. If it's, if it has left in some way, shape or form uh, that and the level of customer service, um, you know, ensuring that 
you, you know, prioritization of, of patients happens in that your most urgent patients are cared for, but yet the patients that aren't sick, um, that they are communicated with, that they're getting their, their, their blood work and their diagnostics regularly. Most people, what they want is, is they want to be looked after and they want to be told what they need to do. And, um, you know, although some are, are now getting more accountable for their health care and they're, they're looking up these sorts of things, you know, there's, it's different genera- uh, generationally. We, we see the younger millennial generation, Generation Z, they're, they're actually uh, more concerned with their health than the older generations, what we're finding via our surveys. And so it's important that you have a strategy for each one of those generations and that you're appealing to them. Typically, we see our millennials and Generation Zs prefer the conversational AI in chats and, and the older generations prefer the phone. However, that's not to say that, that the silver generation and the older generations are not getting good with technology. They certainly are, uh, and they have become quite accustomed to telehealth. So offering telehealth, having good uh, website manners, um, you know, being agile and flexible, not being afraid to uh, ditch that fax machine and adopt new technologies. Um, AI is expensive and, you know, a smaller pra- practice isn't going to, to, to have all the top of the line bells and whistles, but um, ensuring that individuals have a, a secure way of contacting their doctor, the encrypted emails, um, you know, possibly some apps, you know, a way to um, use data analytics to analyze data from their consumer wearables is a huge demand that consumers have right now. Those are some, some uh, differentiators that can help them. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us today, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for asking all those very interesting questions. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.